You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Glad you're here today. Uh, if you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you as well. It's, um, it's a privilege, and um, we're grateful that you would be with us and worship with us today. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I have the honor to serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer. And um, man, do we have a humdinger of a, of a passage today. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I get to do for our church is lead us in preaching. And that doesn't mean that I'm the only pastor that preaches, but that means that I get to think about and work on what we'll be preaching and organized sermon series. And um, I don't know what I was thinking this week. I should have given this passage to Pastor Rick or Pastor Josh and just sat back with popcorn and um, like what you're doing today. All kidding aside, um, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're uh, to chapter 13. And this passage, uh, Mark chapter 13, 1 through 37, Katie just read the back half of it for us. Uh, this, this text, these 37 verses, it's the longest teaching of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus gives us 39 sentences in, in our English Bible. The longest teaching of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. And it is the longest discourse of Jesus by far. The, the second closest one that we get in Mark is only six sentences long. And so this is a complex and complicated text. We're going to get into it in a minute. Um, but what I want to say is that it is important that the fact that, that Mark gives us this message of Jesus, this word of Jesus, uh, with so much detail, which is not what he does. Matthew's gospel does that. Matthew takes Mark's gospel and the events and the miracles and the actions and the teachings, and Matthew builds upon it and gives us the Sermon on the Mount and a lot of other things. Mark is focused mainly on Jesus' essential actions and, um, and, his, and his primary message. So the fact that he gives us this 39 sentences it is important. It's especially important to Mark's original hearers. Think about those first century Christians that received the gospel of Mark, and they had heard about Jesus through the testimony of the apostles, and now they've received this account. They're suffering persecution as Christians in the, in, in the first century world. And Jesus gives a word here to stay awake, stay on guard, pay attention, Jesus says. This text today is not only is it the longest one in Mark, but it's a passage that is, um, that's debated. The meaning of this passage and is debated. I, I did a lot. I read as much as I possibly could this week on this passage. And um, uh, several top flight scholars, uh, great um, scholars, biblical scholars. And I walked away from all of my reading going, well, there's you know, a lot of smart people that all kind of disagree on what this passage means. So I'm approaching this text today humbly. I want you to know that. Yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this com the complications and, and the complexity of Jesus' words here, we're giving very clear instructions. I want you to look back at verse 37. Uh, verse 37 really says it all. Jesus says, what I say to you, speaking to his disciples... What I say to you, speaking to, to those, especially these four disciples, we'll look at that in a minute, as the cross of Christ is looming over them, he says, what I say to you, I say to all, all future followers of Jesus, you and me, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, stay alert, be on guard, don't fall asleep, stay sober-minded, stay faithful, over and over again throughout this passage. 
and verse 9, and verse 23, and verse 33, and verse 35, and verse 37, Jesus gives this instruction to his followers, to his followers sober-minded faithfulness as his people. So this text, it's not meant to confuse us. This text is meant to encourage us to keep our eyes focused and fixed on Jesus and his glorious return. And so let me pray for us, and then we will start back in verse 1, and we'll kind of make our way through this text. Let me pray. Almighty God, we come before you now humbly, and we pray that as we open your word, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts, that you would waken our minds to receive the truth of your word. Give us clarity today. Help me even as I teach your words, Lord Jesus, that it would not detract from the point, from the command that you've given us, that we would be a people who endure in suffering. We would be a people who stay alert and we are not led astray by the ways of this world, that we don't fall asleep, we're not lulled to sleep by comfort of this life and the idols of this world, but that we are wide awake to you and to your purpose, to your mission, to our glorious future in Christ, that our lives would be laid before you and be used for your glory in every way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to get a question in the text. Jesus is going to give a long and complicated answer, and there's a very clear point. So let's start by looking at the question that, that prompts Jesus is teaching here. Um, We've got to go back to verses 1 through 4. So Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus is going to get a question from his disciples. Now, just to remember the context, a lot of people have taken this passage and have tried to interpret it void of its context. And I don't want to do that. I think the context is key to kind of getting through Jesus' words the right way. And so the context is this. Remember, we've been walking through Mark's gospel. Jesus is in his final week of his life and his ministry. It's taken us several weeks to get through Mark's detailing of this, but on Sunday, uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem to the shouts and the praise of the people. Um, On Monday, he enters into the temple and he curses a fig tree and then he cleanses the temple. He flips tables. He basically says that this house has become a den of robbers. That's on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus returns to the temple and he begins to debate with the religious leaders, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get rid of him. And Jesus debates, spars with them, if you will. We've looked at these series of uh, conversations that Jesus has had with the religious leaders. He avoids their trap. He displays his superior wisdom. He reveals their hypocrisy. And now, as we get to chapter 13, it's still Tuesday. It's Tuesday afternoon. It's later in the day. And Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. Look at Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Stop for a moment. As they're leaving the temple, one of Jesus' disciples marvels at the beauty of the temple. Now, no doubt these disciples have seen the temple many times. Probably in the same way that you or I have seen the sunset many times. But there are still those moments and there are still those particular days where we see the sunset and it just catches us in a certain way, right? You've experienced this and you marvel. You're driving down the road and you're like, kids, look at the sunset. It's beautiful. And they don't really care, you know, but you're, but you're, you're marveling at it. You've seen it many times and you're still marveling at it. 
And this is, I think, what's happening here. They're walking out of the temple, and one of the disciples marvels at its magnificence, and rightfully so. Uh, King Herod was set on making the Jerusalem temple the most beautiful building in the world. Since Herod had become king over the Jews, he had he doubled the temple in size. Some scholars will say that the temple was even still under construction, even in the days of Jesus. They were still building it and still expanding it. This expanded foundation under Herod uh, what, what covered 1.5 million square miles. Some scholars will say it was up to one quarter or one sixth of the entire city, the temple itself. So it wasn't so much that Jerusalem was a city with a temple, it was a temple that made up most of the city, the majority of the city. The stones that Herod used to expand the foundation were absolutely massive. According to Josephus, who is an, an ancient historian, Josephus writes that the stones of this expanded temple foundation were 67 feet long, 7 feet high, 9 feet thick. Think about this. And so this temple is massive. These stones are gigantic. Josephus writes this, uh, he says that from the, the top of the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus is with his disciples in this scene as he gives this message, he's sitting at the top of the Mount of Olives with his disciples. Josephus writes, the whiteness of the stones, its gold trim and gold covered roof of the temple sanctuary made the temple mount look like a snow-capped mountain and was a blinding sight. Another scholar put it this way, he says, the magnificence of the city and the temple complex cannot be exaggerated. The majesty and the grandeur of the temple complex would have made even some of the seven wonders of the world pale in comparison. So they're leaving the temple. One of Jesus' disciples decides to just kind of take it in, marvels at the beauty of this building. But Jesus has already made it clear that while this building, this temple, is beautiful, it is magnificent, it is indeed an impressive feat of human power and wisdom, he is not impressed. Jesus has already made this clear. It's not a thing of beauty in his eyes. Remember what he says in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, he says that this place is a den of robbers. You've turned the house of God into a, a hideout for the wicked, Jesus says. Jesus has already made this clear that in his eyes, he's not impressed. That what God intended for this place to be, a place of his presence, a place of worship and communion, a place of mercy and forgiveness, a place of peace, had become a den of robbers, a place of human pride. It's become a place of injustice, a place of factions, of narcissistic leadership, of pretentious praise, of selfish gain. All of this, the glory hunger of Herod. All of it in the name of a holy God. And while it was indeed marvelous to human eyes, Jesus wants his disciples to know that it is despised in the eyes of God. And that judgment, judgment, the judgment of God will come upon this temple. Judgment is, a, is in its future. This is what Jesus is speaking to first in the text. Look at verse 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, Jesus is saying, this place, all of its beauty, all of its magnitude, the judgment of God will come upon it and it will be nothing but rubble, destruction, total ruin. There will not be one stone 
left upon another. Verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things, the, the, the destruction of this temple, when will these things be and what will be the sign? How will we know when this destruction of the temple are to be accomplished? And Jesus' response here clearly gets the attention of Peter and James and John and Andrew. And keep in mind, Mark is writing from uh, the source. Peter is Mark's source. And so uh, this, uh, this gets the attention of Peter. The text doesn't tell us this, but I certainly imagine that Peter is going, wait a second. Wait, what? You've, you've, you've called us to be your disciples. You've, you've promised that your kingdom is here, is at hand, that you are the king. You've called us to, to, you know, James and John wanted to sit at his right and at his left in his kingdom. And now you're talking about the temple being destroyed. That only sounds like one thing. That sounds like war. That sounds like destruction. That sounds like Israel is defeated, that the temple is torn down. Jesus, wait a second. They need to know more. When, Jesus? When will these things be? How will we know? What will be the sign? They want to know what's ahead for them as his followers. If destruction of the temple is coming, that they need to know how to prepare. Clue us in, Jesus. And I can identify with these guys here. I mean, I bet you can too. Like, if you could just get a snapshot of your future, wouldn't that help quite a bit? I think all of us, like if just five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if I could just kind of see what that would be like. I know that life is hard. Like the more you live, the more that you realize that we really do live in a world of sin and death and that life is hard and suffering is real. And so if we could just get a bit of a snapshot of what's ahead for us, maybe it would make it a little bit easier for us now to prepare, to make sure that we're, that we're, uh, that we're, uh, we're ready for that, that we wouldn't be as anxious. I can totally identify with these guys here. They've staked everything on Jesus. You said your kingdom was coming. We believe you're the Messiah. Now it sounds like you're saying that Israel will be destroyed in a war. Help us out, is what they're saying to him. And what I think is interesting here is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. There have been times where Jesus rebukes them previously when they maybe speak out of turn or they say something that lacks faith. That's not what Jesus does here at all. He doesn't rebuke them for desiring to know the future, but instead he gives them exactly what they've asked for plus more in these 39 sentences. He gives them a prophetic word. Jesus is going to speak prophetically about what is to come for Israel in the years ahead. He's going to speak a prophetic word about judgment and destruction of Jerusalem that would indeed come in the year 70 AD. The temple would indeed be destroyed at the hands of the Roman army. But also, in the midst of this, Jesus is going to give them more. Jesus is going to speak an echo, a word about a future judgment that is also to come upon his second coming. In other words, as we work our way back through Jesus' words here, we really need to do so with two lenses. We need to read the text with a lens that looks near to AD 70 when the temple is destroyed, and we need to read the text with a lens that looks far to the second coming of Christ. Maybe this will help. I've got, I've got an image that I want to share with you that I think might help us. Maybe rather than thinking about reading this text through two lenses, we need to think about two mountain peaks, or maybe three, you know, there's a few perspectives in the text. And so we've got first Jesus on the Mount of Olives. You, this is the best picture I could find, by the way. Uh, we've got Jesus on the Mount of Olives. You can maybe imagine this quaint little cabin <laughs> here, okay? 
And he's talking to his disciples first and foremost about how they need to stay prepared and what it's going to mean for them to be his witnesses following his death and resurrection. And then he's going to speak maybe to the first mountain peak, to the, the, the first moment of judgment, the judgment of Israel that's going to come in AD 70. And so we're going to see that in the text. So first he's warning them not to be led astray, not to fall away, but to continue to preach the gospel even amongst persecution. Uh, don't get caught up in kind of uh, the politics of Israel's day, but stay focused on taking the gospel to the nations. And then he's going to give them details about how to endure and be delivered amidst the judgment that's going to come upon Israel. And then in the distance, it is a bit veiled, not nearly as clear. Jesus is going to speak about the final day of judgment and what it will mean for those who follow him to be delivered. And so this is what we're going to look at. So we'll work our way back through the text, starting in verse 5. So they've asked the question. They're concerned. Tell us when this judgment is going to come. How do we endure? How do we prepare? Verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Stop for a minute. What is Jesus saying here to his disciples as they sit on the Mount of Olives? He's saying, watch out for false teachers. Watch out for false teachers. They're going to spring up in the days before the coming judgment of Jerusalem. And what do false teachers like to do? Well, they like to panic people. False teachers like to work people up into a fear frenzy. That's what they like to do. And so he's saying they're going to they're going to work things. They're going to work they're going to work up a frenzy. Uh, beware of false teachers. Don't be led astray. And and this certainly happens. You can read about this in historical accounts of Jerusalem in the time leading up to uh, the the Jewish Roman War in 66 A.D. There were many factions among Israel. There were many false messiahs that popped up to lead Israel. And, and, uh, and, and war against the Romans. And Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in all of that. Don't get caught up in the politics of Jerusalem, but stay focused on proclaiming the gospel, on the, proclaiming the good news of my life, my death, my resurrection, and my second coming to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 9. This is where he goes. He says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my sake. But the one who endures, who stays awake, who isn't led astray, who doesn't get caught up in all of the controversy, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And we certainly see this play out in the book of Acts, don't we? Jesus is saying, don't worry about all the politics. Don't get caught up in all the controversy. Don't get led astray or distracted. You are my disciples. Stay focused on my mission. And then Jesus is going to get a bit more specific, though, about this coming destruction, this coming judgment. Look at verse 14. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. I love that, by the way. I love that Mark is essentially saying here, yeah, you're right. It's confusing. It's basically what he's saying. Yeah. Understand if you have understanding. <laughs> if you understand what Jesus is saying, then understand it. He's acknowledging that that this is coded language. We'll talk about this in a minute. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has, as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. And then finally in verse 30, he tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Jesus is getting specific here about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, about that tribulation. And by the way, um, that word tribulation, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to Jesus when he said it to his original disciples. And so all that word means is anguish or pressure. It's this, this great pressure, this anguish, this, this great troubling day that's going to happen. And he's talking about the destruction of the temple. And so Jesus is getting more specific, and he's saying, what I told you in verse 2 certainly will come to be. The, the temple will be destroyed and turned to rubble. And it's well documented that this happens. Jerusalem is destroyed, and it is a dark, dark, dark day indeed. Brother turned on brother. There are different factions among Israel that began to kill each other. They were so starved by the Romans that they start to kill each other, that there's even, uh, Josephus even accounts that there was cannibalism among the Jews because they're so starved. It was a horrible, horrible dark day. The Romans, it was just an utter humiliation at the hands of the Romans. They so turned on each other that scholars will tell you that more Jews actually killed each other than were killed by the Romans. It was a horrible day of division and death and darkness, this, this day of destruction that came upon Jerusalem and upon its temple. Horrible devastation, literal hell on earth, ultimate humiliation among Israel. Josephus' account of the Jewish-Roman war will talk about how even after the math, there's these images of, of Jews crucified all over the city, the city on fire, and Emperor uh, Titus and the Romans are parading through the city. It's gruesome accounts of how they celebrated this destruction of the Jewish people. Literal hell on earth in AD 70. And here's what Jesus says in verse 14. Don't miss this. In verse 14, he tells him, he says, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, would be the sign that it was time for all of his followers to flee Judea. Do you see this? What does that mean? Well, this is code language that comes from the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Book of Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Where Daniel talks about a day in the future where pagan armies would come in and defile Israel's temple. 
And so here's what I think. I think Jesus is telling them clearly. He's saying, yes, judgment is going to come upon the temple. Judgment is going to come upon Israel. But when you see the pagan armies come in and begin to defile the temple, get out of the city. Listen to my word. Get out of the city and do it quickly. Pray that it happens in the summer, not in the winter, because people are less likely to leave their homes in the winter. Do it quickly. Don't, don't even, get, if you're on the rooftop, just go. Don't even go back in your house. And he's saying, if you hear my words, if you keep my words, you will be delivered from judgment. You will not have to live through and experience the judgment. Hearing my words, holding them, keeping them, trusting them is what will save you from the coming judgment. I think this is the first thing that Jesus is speaking to. It is the, the, mountain, uh, the first mountain peak in view. And then Jesus, it seems, turns his attention to something different. Look at verses 24 through 27. He begins to speak about, I think, the second mountain peak, where he talks about a different day of judgment and a different day of deliverance for his people. The second coming of Christ. Verse 24 he says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends, uh, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens." Jesus now begins to talk about the far judgment. Jesus, he speaks about a time after this judgment, after this pressure, after this day of anguish and devastation, there would be a future people who would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. In other words, I believe he's saying that this first judgment, the destruct, he's telling his disciples this first judgment, this destruction of the temple in AD 70, the judgment of Israel and its leaders for rejecting the Messiah, for rejecting the words of the Son, would be the sign. It would be a pointer for the future judgment that would come for the whole world upon the return of Jesus Christ. So there's a judgment and a deliverance, and now he's saying that judgment and deliverance is but an appetizer, a pointer of a second judgment and deliverance that would come. And the way that Jesus speaks about his return here is really, really important. Look at what he says. He says, they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And so there's another judgment coming, but this time it won't be Rome coming with power. It will be Christ and he will be coming in clouds. This is significant. This is important. Throughout the Bible, we see God's presence manifesting itself on earth in clouds, don't we? Think about Mark chapter 9. Uh, these same disciples who Jesus is now talking to, uh, three of them were the same disciples that Jesus brought up the mountain during the transfiguration. And Jesus reveals to them his, uh, his, his glory. And what does the text tell us in Mark chapter 9 verse 7? That they see Jesus surrounded by Clouds, surrounded by clouds. What about in the Old Testament? We see God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 33 at Mount Sinai in a pillar of clouds. Exodus chapter 13, when God delivers his people from Egypt, it says that God appeared before the Egyptian army in Exodus chapter 13 
in cloud. And, and his power and his glory is so great as it is being revealed that the wheels fall off the Egyptian chariots and that they run and they flee and God's people are delivered. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that he's using the same motif that we see all throughout the scripture. It's the idea of what people call Shekinah glory. When the divine glory of God makes its presence on earth, he's saying the son of man is coming in clouds and he will come with great power and great glory. You know, there's a lot of people that will take these kinds of texts and we often uh, will think about Jesus coming and they'll, they'll try to change the text to say Jesus is going to come through the clouds. And when he comes through the clouds and we have this kind of idea of rapture, he's going to rapture everybody and we're going to meet him in the sky. And, and, and we kind of get weird and quirky with these kinds of texts, but that's not necessarily what he's saying. He's not coming through the clouds. He's coming in clouds. He's coming with power and glory. And when the trumpet sounds, it's this idea that uh, this ancient idea that dignitaries would go out and would, would meet the coming king and would usher him into the city. This is the picture that, that we're getting, this idea that Jesus would come with power and glory and that, that, uh, that, that he would be, his glory would be brought in and manifest in the earth. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So Jesus speaks prophetically here about a future day of judgment in which he will come in glory with power. And that this too, this day of judgment too, will be a day of deliverance. For who? A day of deliverance for those who hear his word, who trust his word, who keep his word until the end. He says they will be gathered up from among the nations and they will live in the light of his glory and his grace. The glory of of Jesus Christ will fill the earth as the waters covers the sea. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse into what all of this will look like, what it will look like for us to live in the fullness of Jesus's glorious presence, those who hear his word and who keep his word. Revelation chapter 21, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. I want you to hear this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Listen to what Listen to what uh, the scriptures say about the, the second coming of Christ, what it will be for his glory to come, to dwell among us in full, to fill the earth with his power and glory. Verse 4, Revelation 21, verse 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 through 4. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever. What a picture! of the glory of Christ Jesus coming to earth, on earth as it is in heaven, the glory of Christ coming. But listen to Revelation 21, verse 8. Listen to the warning. It says, But as for the cowardly, as for the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
What is Jesus talking about here? As he sits on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, he talks about two days of judgment and deliverance. Two days of judgment and deliverance. You see, the point of Mark 13 is clear. The the message of Mark 13 is complex and complicated, but the point is clear. It's a promise. Judgment and deliverance. Deliverance and judgment. Judgment will come upon those who have rejected the Messiah, and it will not be pretty. It will be devastating. It will be darkness. It will be humiliating. The first coming of Christ The incarnation of Jesus, his life, his ministry, which we've read all about in the Gospel of Mark. The first coming of Christ was the manifestation of the love of God. The manifestation of the compassion of God and his mercy towards sinners. To all who believe upon him, they will find their lives safe and secure. But the second coming of Christ, as he comes as king to judge the living and the dead, it will be a manifestation of his righteous judgment. It will be a manifestation of his hatred towards sin and injustice and evil. It will be his glory and his power and his holiness that is on display. With great power and glory, he will come. Listen, here's the point of Mark chapter 13. Righteous judgment, glorious deliverance. It'll either be righteous judgment or glorious deliverance. Every single person in this room and on this planet, that is your future. Either righteous judgment or glorious deliverance. And because this is true, because this is the true point, there are two points of application today. Two points of application. First, if you're here today and you have not received the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to plead with you would you, would you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior of, for, for your sins? Would you claim him as your Savior and would you crown him as your King? The Bible tells us that it is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that we are saved. Would you crown him as your King? It's either righteous judgment upon sin and sinners or it is glorious deliverance for those who are unworthy. We say worthy is the Lamb who was slain for our sins. Would you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior, and would you crown him as your King? And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the application for us is pretty simple as well. Let us hear Jesus' words. Let us hear through all of the complications and the, 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 the complexities of this prophetic word of Jesus, let us hear what is clear and simple. Stay awake, Jesus says. Stay awake. Stay patient. Sober up. Stay awake to what? What is it that he calls us to stay awake to? Stay awake to our mission as his people. He calls us to stay awake to our purposes as his people. He calls us to stay awake to his presence among us by his spirit. He calls us to stay awake to our future and our hope that is truer than anything else in your life right now. Your future in Jesus Christ, the son of man coming for you, bringing the glory of God in full on earth as it is in heaven, the day where there'll be no more tears and no more death, the day where we'll no longer need the sun and the moon because the light of Christ will be our guide, that is your future. And he says, stay awake to that future, live for that day, long for that day. In other words, we must not, church family, be lulled asleep by the ways of this world. I think that there are too many of us that are tempted today to be lulled asleep 
by the comforts of this world, by the ways of this world, by the, wor- the words of this world, where maybe Jesus gets a sixth or, a, or an eighth of our affection and our devotion. May we stay awake to what is ultimate reality. May we not get distracted and be led astray by false teachers and the words of others. There's so many in our day today who are led astray and who are distracted by false teachers. May we not become overcome by suffering. I think this is part of what Jesus is saying too. Stay awake. Don't be overcome by suffering. There are some among us today who's, who have endured a lot of suffering. And I want you to know if that's you, you are in good company with followers of Jesus all across this globe and all throughout history. You're in good company. May we not be overcome by sufferings, but may we stay awake to our hope and to our future that we might endure in suffering. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And so would we receive this loving exhortation from Jesus? Would we remember his promise? Would we stay awake until he comes again? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that this glorious day of your return is our future if we are in Christ. It is our future. It is our reality. Our eternal truth is that we will reign with you, not because we've earned your love or your favor, but because you have been gracious toward us. And upon your return, your promise is that you will gather up your people from the ends of the earth to dwell in the light of your glory and grace for all eternity. And so help us Holy Spirit, to stay awake, to be sober-minded, to live faithfully for Christ, that we may endure in suffering, that we may abound in hope, that we may not waste our life on things that are rubble and rubbish in the end. Would you help us to be a people that are zealous for good works, that love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that worship you accordingly because of what you've done for us. What a day it will be. And we do pray, Lord, that you would come soon. Would you come soon, Lord Jesus? We want to be with you. We want to dwell in your presence in the light of your glory and grace. And until that day, would you help us to hold fast to your, our confession, to meet together day by day, to love you, to seek you, sustain us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.